0: Uh, but you see that there's a, uh, there's a pattern you find in Scripture of this, this idea of suffering which is followed by glorification. So you see different characters within the Bible, they go through a period of suffering. Then God comes and judges certain bad, villainous characters in this, in this tale and then brings the protagonist in the story a, a level of glorification, usually by enriching them, giving them all sorts of livestock and all sorts of wealth. Uh, You can think of, for instance, Abraham. Abraham, when he went, it happened a few times where he went down into Egypt and the Pharaoh stole his wife, although he did try to palm her off as his sister. uh, He did take Sarah to be his wife and God judged his household with many different plagues and then having judged them and protected Sarah from being violated, rescued Sarah out of that situation and then greatly enriched Abraham as he went on his way. You see the same pattern happen with Joseph. He's been thrown into slavery. He then goes into slavery in Egypt. He then ends up in prison. But then God rescues him out of prison and makes him the head of all of Egypt. You see, when the Exodus comes around, you see Israel has been 400 years in slavery in Egypt under all sorts of afflictions. And yet God rescues them through many plagues, judges the nation that did all these horrible things to them. And then they plunder Egypt as they leave and are greatly enriched by them. This kind of pattern repeats again and again, whether you're thinking of Gideon or David or Hezekiah or the Israelites. Nehemiah, when they return from exile and Cyrus, the king of Persia at the time, gives them all this money and all of the articles of the temple. Go and rebuild your temple. And God plunders sinners and gives what they have to his people. You see that this happens in Proverbs. I don't have the passage in front of me because my introduction has gone. But you see that the wealth of sinners is laid up for the righteous. You see the same thing in Ecclesiastes. It's up here. Okay, next one, Ecclesiastes. The sinner, he has given the business that God has given to the sinner, the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. It's one of the most interesting patterns we find. And here today, we're going to be looking at this pattern playing out in the life of Jesus. Jesus, suffering at the hands of ungodly men, suffering a weight that we can possibly imagine as the wrath of the Father is poured out to him on the cross of Calvary. But yet through that, he is made rich and triumphing over his enemy, Satan, plunders his house. Jesus says in Mark 3, that he has come and plundered the house of the strong man. And in context, who's the strong man? The devil. And he has plundered the devil of all his riches and taken it for himself. And what was the riches of the devil we find in the temptation in the, gu- uh, in the desert? The nations. I want to say it's still the same today. When we see sinners around us, sinners gathering all sorts of wealth and looking like they're progressing and looking like all these great things happening to them, we need to remember this pattern. For maybe suffering is allotted to us, but we remember that they will never keep their wealth. Their wealth is not laid up for their children, and they do not live long in the land. God judges them, and their wealth is laid up for His people, as Jesus says, the meek inherit the land. Uh, So, let's get into it. My first uh, point that I have for today is the dual preparations. There are two preparations that we see happening in this passage. We see uh, in verse 3 of Luke 22. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray uh, him to them in the absence of a crowd. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So we see two kinds of preparation. The first one is the preparation of Satan through Judas, and the preparation of Jesus through his disciples. Judas, he meets here with the chief priests and the officials, the Sadducees, in order to make preparations for the arrest of Jesus. Now, we've already learned that they are terrified of Jesus. Because he's very popular and the crowd wouldn't let them just arrest him in broad daylight. And so they're looking for someone to help them understand where is Jesus going at night? Where is Jesus going when the crowds aren't there? And how can we know where he is so we can arrest him there? And we remember in the the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, they bring a large crowd to go and arrest Jesus. They were expecting a fight. They were expecting a kerfuffle. And so they wanted it to be as discreet as possible. And then... Satan finds the perfect opportunity in Judas. See, Judas has decided in his heart that he no longer wants to throw his chips in with Jesus anymore. He doesn't want to follow Jesus anymore. He's kind of in an awkward position because he's got to get out of this situation. And Satan comes alongside him and says, you can make some money on the way out. Why don't you go find the chief priests? They can arrest him. And you can get a small fortune. I mean, he gets enough money to purchase a field. 30 pieces of silver. That's a significant amount of money. See, Satan was well aware that the Holy One of God had come. The Messiah had just rode into Jerusalem. And that his firm grip over this present cosmos was threatened. He understood that he's in a precarious situation. And that Jesus seems to be nearing whatever he's planning on doing. And Satan is not keen on that. And so he wants to strike while he can. He's been pretty good all throughout the history of God's people of poisoning the well. When Moses came up and rescued Israel from Egypt by the mighty hand of God, Satan was right there to tempt Israel and force them 40 years in the desert and really just derail all the things that God was trying to do. He's done it many, many times. And here he is right now trying to derail whatever God is doing. He knows he can't stop God, but he's had good success in the past, and he's planning, he's banking on using Judas. And so he possesses Judas. And together, they both go to the chief priests. Now, I want you to know that this doesn't alleviate Judas of responsibility for his actions. It's not the case that Judas, well, he didn't want to betray Jesus. He didn't really want to do it, but Satan made him do it. That's not the case. He was right there with Judas Together, they went and betrayed Jesus. The Gospel writers make it very clear that Judas had already desired to do it. Satan put that desire in his heart. Satan gave him the plan, but Judas signed it. He said, yes, I want to betray the Son of Man. And while Satan was making his preparations through Judas, Jesus was making a different kind of preparation. Jesus was preparing to eat the Passover with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the passage here tells us, also known as the, uh, well, it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, was the most popular of all the Jewish festivals. You've heard this before, but during this time, hundreds of thousands of men, women and children would flock to Jerusalem and would swell the city to more than a million people. And they would come bringing their lambs and they would offer their lambs at the temple and the priests would be working night and day, sacrificing All of these lambs, so that people could get their lambs, or maybe not night and day, I think it was only one day. But I want you to know that the swelling of this city to over a million people was enormous. There was only one other city anywhere else in the world that had a population equivalent, and that was Rome. I mean, they had a stable one million population, and Jerusalem would have it during this festival. But just for reference, the city of London didn't reach a million people until the year 1810. That is a huge amount of people, and it's been a huge amount of people for most of human history. And Jerusalem in the 8030s was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. And to find a place to have a meal in this city would have been almost impossible at this point. I mean, think about how hard it would be to find an Airbnb in Brankston if just 20,000 people moved into our town. 20,000 people wouldn't fit in our town. You can imagine how hard it would be to find a room. It would have cost an arm and a leg if there was any free spot anywhere in Jerusalem to get it. And yet it seems that Christ knows exactly where to find a room. He knows exactly where to go and get it. Jesus knew that when the disciples would go and he tells them, you're going to encounter a man carrying a jar of water. You're going to meet them at the city gate. That's the guy you want to talk to. He's going to be the servant of this household. He's going to be returning with that jar of water. Follow him to that household. There you're going to meet the master of the house. Oh, you don't know who he is, but you're just going to say this to him. You know, our master has need of this. And he's going to take you up and he's going to show you this large upper room already furnished, which means he was planning on eating his Passover there. In Matthew's account, the disciples simply tell the master of the house that Jesus wants to use the room. It's fascinating that Jesus, obviously, knew all this. And he knew how to get a room for himself in that crowded Jerusalem. And he knew exactly where the disciples were going to go and who they were going to meet and what what place was already prepared for him to have his Passover with the disciples. And this meal was going to reimagine the symbols of the Passover. He was going to introduce now the bread and the wine. To not merely refer to the first exodus that they're celebrating in Egypt, but to point to a new exodus, a new event. The practice of the new Passover, which we call the Lord's Supper or communion. It leads me to my second point, the new exodus. I'm just going to read verses seven to eight and then verses 13 to 14. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So the The Passover was a biblical tradition that the Jews celebrated every year, and they celebrated it in Jerusalem. It's to commemorate, which we find in the 12th chapter of Exodus, the rescue of God's people from slavery. Egypt, as you know from Exodus, had just been decimated by plague after plague after plague, which had left it in ruins. It was a financial ruin. This prosperous nation, the greatest nation in the world at this time, was brought to its knees in just a few short days by God. And Pharaoh stubbornly resisted. He hardened his heart and refused to let the Israelites go. And so God had one final plague. And after this plague, he says to Moses, they will drive you out. This plague would be the murder, well not the murder, but the destruction of their firstborn. It was a brutal plague. But it mirrored the destruction that the Egyptians had made against the Israelites by killing their firstborn boys. But Israel, unlike the other plagues, had to participate with this one. All the other plagues, God made a distinction between them. All these plagues would come down, but the Israelites in the land of Goshen, they were fine. The plagues never touched them. But this time, the plague was going to touch everyone. All the firstborn boys would die. Unless they sacrificed a lamb in their place. And they grabbed this lamb, it had to be a perfect lamb without blemish, without any spot, they slit its throat, collected the blood, and then with a hyssop branch, they wiped it on the doorpost. And if you wiped it on the doorpost, which signified your household, your household would be safe. And the angel of death that was gonna come through would not come and destroy your firstborn. And this is where we get the name Passover, because the angel of death, when it saw the lamb's blood, would pass over the house. But the Israelites weren't going to rest that night. They had to eat the lamb. They had to eat it with bitter herbs. And then they had to eat it with their shoes on and their cloaks around their shoulders because they had to be ready to leave Egypt at a moment's notice. They had to leave everything behind and they had to follow God wherever He was going to lead them. They had no idea where they were going. They had no idea what was going to happen. They just had to trust God that He was going to take care of them and that they needed to leave everything behind, everything they've ever known. All of their customs, all of their livelihoods, they had to leave everything behind. And to symbolize this, the Israelites had to get rid of what was called their leaven. They had to get rid of all of their leaven. They had to throw it away. They had to get rid of it. Now, leaven is like a sourdough starter. Many people don't know this, but to have leaven, you had to collect a whole bunch of yeast and you would feed it and ferment it and use it in the bread time after time after time and you'd keep feeding it. And some of these sourdough starters were centuries old. And you can still find sourdough starters that are centuries old. And apparently, I don't know anything about sourdough making, but apparently the longer the sourdough starter is, the better the taste. And so they had all this leaven that would have been passed down generation after generation after generation in this household, potentially some even 400 years old. I mean, this is complete conjecture, but maybe. But they all had leaven that they had kept, full of all the yeast of Egypt. God says, get rid of it. Throw it away. You have to throw out all your sourdough starter and you have to live in a new way, new life. You've got to start a new lump, basically. You've got to start a new starter. And they do it every year. They throw out their leaven, they throw out their sourdough starter, and they make a new one. And it's to symbolize to them to leave the leaven of Egypt behind. Leave it all behind. I mean, you've got to think about it. They were in Egypt for 400 years. Imagine how hard it is to root out all of the customs and the idolatry I mean, the, the, the Old Testament tells us that in Egypt, the Israel, Israelites worshipped idols. They worshipped alongside all of the Egyptians, all of that stuff. And God says, leave it all behind. I mean, think about it. Imagine if your family was practicing something since 1623 and you had this culture that went back 400 years and God says to you, leave it all behind. Don't do any of it. That would be firmly entrenched, wouldn't it? That'd be like generation after generation after generation. That's just what we do. God says, no, when you come into this new lump, when you come into this new kingdom, this new thing that I'm doing, you have to leave Egypt behind. And this is exactly what the disciples did during their preparation. Interesting to think about it, but the disciples would have kept with them their little sourdough starter everywhere they went. So whenever they bought grain and crushed it into flour, they could make their bread. And so their sourdough starter, which was a year old, they would have grabbed it and thrown it out during the preparations of the Passover. And I don't want to gloss over this because we'd miss a huge portion of what is happening here. See, the book of Exodus is about God rescuing his people from Egypt, but it's not merely about the rescue from slavery, but it's more about a new beginning. It's when they became a nation. It's when they had an identity. They were going to become this new people and they were leaving Egypt and they can't take Egypt with them. They need to be unleavened, just as this bread is unleavened. They need to leave it all behind them. For 400 years, they have been kneaded with the leaven of the Egyptians. We learn elsewhere, of course, that they worshipped idols and they've been influenced and they've been catechized and they've been indoctrinated into so many Egyptian practices. But they have to leave it behind. And it's one of the hardest things that Christians have to do when they first come to Christ is leave their old life behind. And one of the sad realities we see in our church is a lot of churches rushing to these people and saying, "Oh, you don't have to leave that behind. And you don't have to stop doing this. And oh, we have a very wide varying opinions on these things, so you don't have to leave it behind. And the churches often keep the leaven of this world in that new Christian. But the disciples as well don't realize it, but their whole lives, they've been needed by leaven too. Jesus calls it the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now we see... um, this, this manuscript is killing me. We've seen, um, for instance, the Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, Paul sees Christ as the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the true lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world, we see John the Baptist say. And he has called his people out of the old leaven and into the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And it's interesting that we see here this phrase, old leaven. What is that old leaven? He, He calls this old leaven, this old Passover, as malice and evil. And this isn't because the Passover festival had anything wrong with it. The festival wasn't evil. The problem with it is it has been perverted and now was full of hypocrisy and evil and malice. In Corinth, Paul is dealing with a hypocritical church who, you know, you remember there was a guy there that had uh, relations with his mother-in-law and not even the Gentiles do that and they were boasting about how like loving and gracious they are to this guy for keeping him in the church and Paul's like, no, a little bit of leaven, leaven's the whole lump, you need to get rid of him. need to throw him out. You need to hand him over to Satan, which is very interesting, the link with Judas. Uh, But Paul reminds them, don't be leavened with this old hypocritical system, which is put on this big front, but inwardly they were corrupt. Rather, we have to put away all of our old cultural practices, whatever they are, and inwardly start afresh. We need to deny ourselves. And that's exactly what Christ has been calling his disciples to do. They had to leave the pharisaical system behind and follow Christ into the new kingdom. And this was all predicted in the Old Testament. We see in, uh, for instance, Ezekiel 34, prophesying a judgment over the shepherds who gorged themselves on the sheep. We see in uh, Psalm 77, which Steve read for us, the language of dark cloud and thunder and signs in the heavens and the earth shaking. And it signified in that psalm, God's judgment on Egypt and his rescue and he's leading the people of Israel like a flock, Moses and Aaron leading them. When we really understand the background to the Passover, we begin to understand how Jesus' teaching culminates into this grand moment in the Lord's Supper. How Jesus is giving his disciples the sign of the new covenant. This ongoing ritual, this ongoing practice to celebrate the institutions of this new Exodus. See, Paul calls our church a new lump, a new lump of dough. Very interesting language. See, a new lump is the new lump after the festival of the unleavened bread. And this new lump would gather all sorts of yeast spores. One of the weird ways that you'd make a starter is there's yeast flying around all of us right now. We're breathing it in, and you can st- you, you know you can capture this yeast by having um, your uh, your dough, and it would gather all this yeast. See, but the church, Jesus is saying, we're no longer stained by the uh, Paul. Sorry, is saying we're no longer stained by the old leaven. We're no longer living in the ways of the Pharisees, who Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Or the perverse way of the Gentiles, like the man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Because we have a Passover lamb that has washed us clean in his blood. God himself has removed the leaven of this world. And so we have to live like it. We have to live as though we are a part of the new lump. And this new lump is rising with something different. This new lump is rising in the Holy Spirit. This new lump is rising in the teachings of Jesus. This new lump is gathering leaven, like the, like the woman working leaven through um, a lump of flour. We see that in Luke 13, 20. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. See, that's what the kingdom of God is like. But we are that leaven now that works its way through the culture. It works its way through and brings all things under the yeast of Jesus, you could say. Now Jesus is going to institute the new covenant. New covenant's coming in. That's my third point. The new covenant in Jesus' blood. So let's finish off this passage. Verse 17. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. What is interesting here is that Christ is going to act something out for the disciples. And every time he does it, he says to them, do this. Watch what I'm doing. And you guys need to do this in remembrance of me. Because everything that I'm doing for you right now, you guys have to do. This is the new Passover meal that I want you to celebrate when my kingdom comes. When my kingdom comes here on this earth, I want you to do these very things. Do exactly what I'm doing. He takes the cup and he gives thanks for it. And he says, do this. Give thanks in the way that I'm giving thanks. Thanks. This is how you ought to view my sacrifice. This is how you ought to view my blood, not with misery, not with sorrow, but with thanks. What I am doing for you should bubble up within you in thanksgiving. Jesus wasn't going to a shameful death, but a death that would ransom countless multitudes of people who would trust in him. He then takes the unleavened Passover bread, the new lump that the disciples have just cooked, And he says, take this. He gives thanks for it. And he says, take this. This is my body. This new lump, this new loaf. And you are going to belong to this. When we come to the Lord's table, we remember that we come to the feast of feasts. It's the feast that shows the world that God himself has welcomed us to his table through the body and blood of Jesus. It's the feast that tells the world that God has fellowship with us and that we have communion with him. God won't withhold any blessing from us. But Jesus did not even withhold his very self from us. Jesus is the manna that fell from heaven. He is the Passover lamb. He is the unleavened bread, not leavened by any stain or sin in this world. He is the one who nourishes us with his own body. He is the vine in which we must abide and we draw all of our vital life from him. This is what we signify when we come to the Lord's Supper. This is what we teach to each other when we eat together. But there is a warning every time we come to this table. There are those who eat with us, who call us brother and sister, who dip their hand in the bowl with us, but they are traitors. They are not true. Jesus warns that the hand of a betrayer is with him at this meal who will eat the bread along with them and drink the blood alongside them. See, Judas represents, as I said before, the leaven of the Pharisees, because he was one of the most gifted hypocrites that you could ever see. In fact, when Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me, isn't it fascinating that the eyes didn't all dart to Judas? They didn't know. No one suspected him. No one thought it was going to be him. But he had already been hired by the chief priests and the Pharisees by this point. He had already given his life over to the authority of Satan at this point. He was already in big trouble. And one of the sad realities of the Lord's table is that not all who eat with us, not all who claim the name of Christ truly belong to him. Our participation in the Lord's table will either be a source of great thanksgiving, nourishment and sustenance in our walk with Christ or it will be a source of great judgment, defiling, and destruction in our rejection of Him. The communion table is a welcome sight to God's people, but horrifying to pretenders. Because Christ knows our heart. You see, the disciples couldn't see. I can't see your heart. No one sitting next to you can see your heart. But who saw Judas's heart? Jesus. He looks right into the heart and he sees the person's soul and he knows that one is sitting who is his betrayer. Paul warns the Corinthian church that if they take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, they are eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper, we do not get to mess around with it. We don't get to do whatever we want to do. We don't get to come along to it and say, nah, I want to do this. So I want to practice this. So I want to do it this way. See, Jesus says something interesting about the Lord's Supper here. He says in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he repeats himself in verse 18 to really make this point. He says, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. See, when the disciples ate this meal, it was sorrowful. It was miserable. Their Lord was going to his death. One of them had betrayed him. It was a hard meal to have. But the reality of the meal that Jesus has given to them hadn't arrived yet. What these things signified hadn't been accomplished. His blood had not been spilled, even though Jesus held the cup out to them and said, this is my blood of the covenant. It was going to be that next day. It's going to be another three days until they're to realize the immensity of what Jesus is about to do. And yet Jesus promises to eat with them again. We will eat again, he says to them. This is not our last meal. The kingdom of God will come in power. And we see that throughout the book of Acts, where Christ's kingdom invades this world. And the early church begin to celebrate the Lord's Supper But you notice it's not with misery, it's not with defeat, but with triumph as they eat with thanksgiving and break bread in each other's homes. When we participate in the Lord's Supper as a body of believers, by faith we are eating with Christ too because it's his table and we're coming to his table. The Holy Spirit renews our souls in the bread and wine just as he refreshes us in the preaching and the singing and the fellowship. You see, one of the things that God has for us is usual means of grace. Usual means that He gives to us, by which He imparts grace to us. Every time you open your Bible up, whether it be in the morning or the night, or if you're doing what Psalm 1 says, both the morning and the night, the Spirit is working through you through the natural means that God has given to us to impart grace to us. He does the same when you come and sit under a sermon. He does the same when you sing praise with the rest of the church. He does the same when you come to His table and real grace is given to you through the signs that you are eating. This isn't a mystical experience. We often get very caught up in it because we don't want to go down the Catholic route. And so we turn it into just a memorial service, but it's a lot more than a memorial service. It is Jesus inviting us to his table to remember what he has done. It's a great celebration. And we come to the table again and again and again and we are nourished through the grace given to us by the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's a terrible thing to come to this table and to sit in his house, showing all the signs of faith, but inwardly being a Judas, harboring hatred of Christ and his people, living in habitual sin and devoid of the Spirit of God, leavened by the leaven of this world. If that is us, then this table is no longer nourishment, but a curse. It is a table of judgment to us. But yet if you love jesus and his bride jesus says come come and eat freely if you love his commandments he says come if you seek to obey all the things that he has commanded us and you love him more than you love everything else do not come to this table with any fear do not come to this table confessing we confessed our sins already you've washed your feet at the door you're ready to eat and eat with gladness and eat with joy come with praise give thanks for the signs that we have here for this is the table that God has prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. And we eat this meal fulfilled with Him and yet proclaiming His death until it becomes comes in its fullest and most full form when we sit with Jesus face to face and eat with Him. But until then, we eat with Him now through His Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to invite us all to come to communion. We're going to come to communion and we're going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus here. Now, I must confess to you guys, communion is probably one of the most underdeveloped part of my theology. It's probably one of the things that I haven't done that much thinking about, and I've kind of just inherited this memorialistic view of it. If you remember, our church used to practice communion uh, once a month, and then we made it once every second week, and now we do it every week. And you can see that there's been a bit of a development in my theology. But I think that, We do celebrate the Lord's Supper in this church in a very individualistic Western way where we have many options. We have different kinds of bread and we all eat our own bread. But I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't have these passages in here, but I think they're up here. Uh, Can you go to the next passage? Should be 1 Corinthians 10. A lot of technical difficulties today. I just have like a bunch of notes. I just had to preach from a bunch of notes today, but I think it ended up all right. Okay, well, in that case, um, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10. We're looking at verse 16 and 17. Paul says that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You see, the Lord's Supper, the the point of the Lord's Supper is to confess our unity, not our division. And when we have multiple options that are available on the table and we all get to pick and choose, it's like us in our Western world where we get to pick and choose what we want. But I don't think that is what is we're getting at here when we come to the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't want to turn anything that we're doing in the Lord's Supper into a legalistic ritual or anything that um, comes out. And if there's any problems, please come talk to me. But What I really want to do is I, you notice here, I baked a bit of bread today. And this bit of bread is gluten-free. And I hope good, because I haven't, this is, you know, it's a bit of an experiment. But it's one loaf, one bit of bread. The reason it's gluten-free is because we are going to cater to our weaker members. And when we say weaker members, members with weaker guts. Now, we could segregate those members and say, no, sorry, gluten-free, guys. I know it, like... Causes your grief. either you have to eat the gluten variety and be sick for a few days or we will give up our freedom and eat in a gluten-free piece together and that's what I want to do together we eat the one loaf the one piece of bread that symbolizes our unity together we come and we dip it in the wine or the juice now I'm not going to change that today but I'd like to have one thing we do because there's one cup of blessing We can talk about that one later, but because I feel like that one would be a little bit more controversial. I'm sure you guys are okay with the gluten piece of bread. But also, I really take into heart one extra thing. When Jesus instituted His Supper, He simply says, do this. He He does something, and then He says, do this, in remembrance of me. And then we take what He said, and we draw a bunch of principles from it, and then we do something different. Now, I want to say, why don't we just do what Jesus did? Why don't I act it out from the front? Why don't I take his body, and when he breaks the bread, I break it. As, as I'm reciting this, when he gives thanks for the bread, I give thanks for the bread. When we come to the wine, I give thanks for it. And we just do it the same way that Jesus does. Just really simple. No, No weird mysticism, no other stuff. We just come and we just do it the way that I think Jesus has asked us to do it. And I hope that I haven't stepped on any toes here, but I'm going to do that now. Verse 19 says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks. Our Father, we thank you that we belong to your body, that this bread here symbolizes the unity of your church, We all belong to the one body, the church universal, the holy bride, which you have purchased with the blood of your son, Jesus. And we confess, Lord, that we are found in this bread as this bread comes and nourishes us, that we find ourselves as a member of your uh, universal church. We thank you, Lord, for all of the great uh, blessings we have here and for the sacrifice of Jesus. And it says, And likewise the cup, after they've eaten, this is the cup that is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Let's give thanks. Our Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that is poured out and makes us righteous. For without this blood, we would have no part in your kingdom and we would not be a member of this church. But because of the sacrifice of your son on the cross, we can have newness of life. We thank you that it is this sacrifice that has made for us a new covenant by which we can escape from the slavery of sin and the leaven of this world. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us into this new world through the blood. And I pray that we would always remember this great sacrifice. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.